this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. Alright, so uh, hey, my first headline today involves the very interesting move of the Trump administration to break with 70 years of U.S. policy and announce that they recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and that they plan to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv, where it currently is, into Jerusalem. So the headlines in the New York Times was, the U.S. is to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, alarming Middle East leaders. Well, all I want to say about this is this decision straight up makes our troops less safe. It poisons America's image in the Arab street, the proverbial Arab street. When I was in Baghdad, where the people were moderately educated, and then when I was in Kandahar province, where 90% of the population couldn't read, both people in both places would regularly talk about. One of the reasons they didn't like American foreign policy was the perception that we were too pro-Israeli and that we were denying the Palestinian statehood. We can argue whether that's true or not. We can argue whether there's a lot more nuance. But the bottom line is, by making this decision, we gain nothing in return from either side, and we make ourselves look like they're right. Look like, in fact, the Arab street has been right all along, and we don't care about the Palestinians and that we favor the Israelis. I mean, the bottom line is this decision will get troops killed. Soldiers deployed overseas, soldiers in combat zones, soldiers that are not in combat zones, are targets for terrorism and targets for insurgency. This is a break with 70 years of policy. There are zero other countries, zero other countries who've put their embassy in Jerusalem. We're playing again, again, as I've written, we're playing right into Osama bin Laden and ISIS's hands, right into the Al-Qaeda playbook and the ISIS playbook. We reinforce their narrative every time we do this. And oh, by the way, this hurts the peace process which is already stalled, the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Remember Trump said he's the deal maker and he's going he's gonna to broker the greatest deal of all time. Tremendous. <laughs> you can't make it up, right? I mean, you know, it, it, this, this hurts the peace process. Uh, Israel can either be a Jewish state or a democratic state. It cannot be both. It either has to provide civil rights for Arabs within the state and for Palestinians within the West Bank and Gaza, or it can be a wholly Jewish state and leave those people, those Arabs, in limbo. And it seems like we know what Netanyahu wants to do, right? It's clear to me uh, at this point that he wants to make a viable Palestinian state impossible. He wants to be a Jewish state rather than a Jewish democratic state. Other proof of that, look at the settlements. They're still putting settlements against international law into the West Bank. And then we're surprised that the peace process is stalled. Well, instead of criticizing Netanyahu a little bit, and taking a fair, honest broker position, what are we going to do? We're going to move the embassy. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know what you think about this, but Trump is out of control. The president is in over his head and he's dangerous. I mean, he may start the third intifada, right? Uh, several Palestinians have been killed, uh, some Israeli troops injured, people are throwing rocks and protesting still. And now we're, you know, this is a week later. If it starts, starts a third intifada or a third rebellion in the West Bank, most of those deaths, which are usually civilian deaths, they're on him. They're on President Trump because he created a crisis of his own making, uh, and it's unnecessary. You know, as for this hurting the peace process, I mean, the article, 
Administration officials admit that they expected the Palestinians to walk away from the peace process, at least for now, and the White House is girding itself for an eruption of violence. It's not like they didn't know. They predicted that this was going to hurt them, but they don't care. They don't care about that. This undercuts the moderates, what's left of them, in the Palestinian movement, and it empowers Hamas and the other Islamist groups because it proves their point, what they've been saying all along. Oh, you can't trust the United States. You can't trust the Israelis. They don't really want peace. So much for draining the swamp, right? Remember, Trump was going to Washington to drain the swamp? Well, Sheldon Adelson, the casino magnate, uh, he donated $25 million to a political action committee that's pro-Israeli. $25 million to a political, political action committee that supports Trump and supports Israel. And, and Adelson has, has expressed angrily that he didn't like that most Republicans had not moved the embassy yet. So is, is that what this is for? Is this, is this for Sheldon Adelson? It's absolutely crazy. Uh, something is wrong when a decision like this unites everyone against you. Europe is against it. The Arab states are against it. The only person who's for it is Benjamin Netanyahu and the right-wing Israeli government. It, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, the, the article, another article said, uh, everyone from Macron in France to Erdogan in Turkey, from the Saudis to the EU, I mean, Trump's decision. Well, congratulations, Donald Trump. You found a way to unite the French, the Turks, the Saudis, all of Europe, and the Palestinians against us. <laughs> You almost have to stand in awe of that. Congratulations. But thankfully, and I'll end on this, we don't have to worry about it because we can count on Jared Kushner, the president's 30-something-year-old son-in-law, to save the day because that's the guy in charge of the peace process. You know, uh, the one of the other quotes I read was, Kushner is too bound up in his latest scandal just revealed by Newsweek that he failed to disclose his co-directorship of foundation funding illegal Jewish colonies in the West Bank. So the honest broker... Son-in-law Jared Kushner is in bed with the Israelis, and we're supposed to believe him. This is just absolutely out of control. How many fronts is our president going to stir the pot on? I, I, I we're, we're at, uh, as, as you pointed out very eloquently, the, the entire Middle East hates this. And they sit on a bunch of different divides. So, you know, five, six different political, social environments all pointed in one direction um you know and and jerusalem it has so much historical significance between muslims jews and christians and you would think that that idea i would hope it would be more united than it is i given the history of the area i get why it's not but it needs to become the next berlin that's what we need to work towards people need it, and as you said it can be democratic or it can be jewish but is sure as shit not going to be able to be both. So I hope they go Democratic. I don't think it's going to happen. And I don't see us having an administration for years that has the backbone to actually stand up for it or even cares about the people it's affecting. I think Trump probably saw this as a way to poke the Middle East. It's going to push up, um, you know, ISIS is on its way out. If there's more anger, they could be uh, pouring in more recruits for them. Um, it could be possibly more money from them from some of the more illicit places where they get funding. Um, it's fucking horrible. I, I, that's all I can say. It's fucking horrible. Absolutely. It is. Uh, it's, ama it's, it's amazing. And 
it's interesting that people across the political spectrum can agree on this. The man is capable of uniting sworn enemies against him, which in one sense is a gift. Unfortunately, no. it's not the kind no, of gift. No, no, no. This happened a few months ago, and I missed the story, but I think it really bears repeating because it has a lot of significance on what's going on with our armed forces today. There was a gas line explosion at Camp Pendleton where a... Um, What's the kind of vehicle? I have the. I always forget the name. It was. Uh, it was one of their personnel carriers. I can't remember the the Marine designation for those. But, anyways, um, it burned fifteen. Many of the Marines that were hospitalized have all already been uh, released as of the posting of this on December twelfth. Oh, here it is. Amtrak. Twenty occupants. It had one sailor and nineteen Marines. While trying to leave a ditch, they cracked open and ignited a gas line along the side of a road. It says temperatures were so high that the gas pipe welded to the steel's uh, to the vehicle steel tread. Photographs included in the report show recovered weapons that appear melted in places with warped bar barrels and missing metal pieces. One of the trucks I used to have was a uh, armored security vehicle, um, and the only U.S. forces I've ever seen use that vehicle were MPs, and now I see them very often in pictures of Iraqi forces, Afghan, Afghan forces, other stuff like that. Um, this fire suppression system in these vehicles does not work very well. I don't know if the ones that I saw were undercharged, but I saw two or three different ones where it simply did not go off when needed. My uh, my guys, my squad actually had a fire in one. It didn't hurt anybody, but and it happened right under where they stored the ammo in the truck. They there was too much insulation on the inside near where the engine. It was basically almost like an engine cover, and so it actually made that stuff catch fire. Um, the article specifically quoted Major General Smith, the first Marine Division commander, who mentioned the idea of giving the Marines better fire retardant uniforms specifically focusing on the hands and face. He then pointed out that the Amtrak's actual crew were wearing Nomex fire suits, um, which are they're designed for flash fires, um, and they probably didn't help very much. Yeah, they slowed the fire down just a little bit, but they're designed for that flash explosion, and then you still have hot stuff around you. There's nothing you could design that would help people in this kind of situation, where there's a constant source of heat, just you know, unending source of fuel. It says it took six paramedic units, three brush fire engines, a ladder truck, five aeromedical ambulances, and a firefighting aircraft rushed to the mishap. But the blaze wasn't extinguished until more than six hours later, after workers closed off the gas line. The reporter revealed that the officials planning the exercise did not know that a Marine DAT bulldozer three months earlier had ruptured the same line 90 feet north of this fire. I think this, this story really highlights something significant about serving in the military. The infrastructure on a military base has to be designed differently. It can't be dealt with and thought of in simple terms. I don't know how you would see this, Danny, but I would imagine you know, a convoy going to a range pulls over next to this and has no idea after the line was split, you know, if, if it was something pretty heavy duty, you know, a five ton, uh, maybe an Abrams, if that post happens to have some, but, um, or God forbid, like the ammo truck, you know, somebody in a 998 with cases of 
whatever they're taking to the range and they just don't happen to see it and so I wondered about is this information that an NCO could find on doing a route recon for the range you know would or would you know was, is there an office on a post that would actually give this information say hey on your route you need to know there's this gas something your guys need to take you know divert this way go around it go well, whatever they need to do but that it's actually accessible yeah that's that's a really good point uh, about infrastructure on a military base and and whether or not it's, that information is centralized in such a way that it gets put out um, it's difficult because the military is, is so overworked and overtrained to a certain extent or, or, or busy training for the next deployment that there's a, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's very much a culture of just get it done. You guarantee that kind of information would get down to an officer or an NCO uh, who is just going out to the range. Yeah, I, I could see it being one of those things that, no, nah, there's never anything on the list. We don't need to check it. Don't worry about it. Um, and with, with so many, like I said, so many other things in the shoot, you know, it, 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 it um, it, it, we cannot impart how many stupid things, and I don't mean stupid in the sense of not important, but stupid in that it com gums up your entire day. All the things that it takes to run a simple training day, to run a range, to run a multi-day range, to take troops to, uh, an outside training facility, bringing ammo with you the the it, it all of it is important but it doesn't all seem important at the time and so things just you know we can we can we can uh somebody uh skillcraft qualify them you know we you can know, we can just you know oh mr pen took care of that we're good that you say that because there are just so many things that can go wrong in the simplest training exercise and i think people only pay attention to the military when it's fighting dying and killing people and don't realize that this is a generally just genuinely dangerous job Army, Navy, Air Force, especially the Navy, right? There's been some serious training accidents uh, of late. Mentor of mine, uh, who shall remain nameless, uh, for his sake, is a assistant division commander, DCG, uh, in one of our 10 divisions. You know, and he has said to me on a number of occasions, we're killing ourselves. We're killing our soldiers. And he means in training because we're overworking them, exhausting these units with deployment after deployment of the same people and then rushing them through a training exercise so they can get to the next deployment or the next deterrence mission in Europe or Korea. And he has said to me, we're killing these kids. And that's a one-star general. It's like, this is not a secret. This is an open secret uh, for anybody who's in the know. And, and I'm really glad you brought this story up because it, it gets at that whole idea that we need to pay attention to the military, its resourcing, and, and how much we're using it, even in peacetime. Of course, we don't know what peacetime is anymore because it's been 17 years of war. But we need to start thinking about the fact that the military is a dangerous job even when we're not deployed. I saw something researching this week that said that between, between I think it was 2008 and 2017, 16 uh, Special Forces Green Berets died participating in the Golden Knights. That is just the airborne, their airborne specialty show that they do that's a special assignment for them. That's just, you know, that's, that's like the Blue Angels. I mean, I'm not talking about danger-wise, but that's what people need to understand about danger. You know, it's just, and, and there's not that many guys that do that. How, you know, how small is the number of guys that actually have that, I, I know it's a special identifier that, that Green Beret guys can get, um, but it just, 
everything we do has an element of danger to it. Even PT, even going out with running for, with your guys. We had a guy who was 23, dropped dead of a heart attack in uh, a, another company in our battalion. You have to be ready for it. If you're, if you're not, or you go into it with a naive mindset, you're just fucking fooling yourself. All right. Uh, next thing. Yeah. 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 No, I, um, I searched high and low this last week trying to find a website that actually tracks U.S. non-combat deaths and lists them by all the details that they have at that time, you know? And so if I can't find one that actually makes it, I want to make one or have, have somebody help us make one because that's something that needs to be seen and it needs to be, as you mentioned, you know, there's this... There's this selective memory when it comes to deciding which deaths are the are the virtuous U.S. military America deaths and which deaths are not. And there's definitely a difference there. And our president has even articulated that. And I think that he sees them as losers, not the non-combat guys. How was that guy so fucking stupid to do that? Absolutely. It has nothing to do with I mean, that, but this, that's you know, this, his that's, mindset. I like that little rant because this is, I mean, this is a guy who said, I'm just okay. about this today in an article. Sorry, I just had another thought there. said that John McCain's not a hero because his favorite soldiers are the ones who don't get captured. So how, why would you expect him to respect training accidents or yeah, logistic yeah. soldiers that get hurt? I mean, He's not going to respect that. He only likes the winners, not the losers. <laughs> and, he, and even the guys who die in combat are still somewhat seen as the losers. You know, it's, it, it's how to, you know, for him, it's a, it's a skill that they acquire, like being a used car salesman. Either you're good that's at it or you're not good at it. But that's not the world that the military lives in. Are and how, you, how little control you have in Murphy's Law. He, he can't fathom it. He was in the middle. He was busy getting draft deferments when, uh, when his generation was called, so... All right, so, uh, well, let's go back to Niger, my favorite West African country in the Sahel. Author that I respect a lot, Nick Terse, wrote in Vice News this week. The uh, title of the article was The Next Niger. And he made some great points about that ambush and made some predictions about the future that I want to highlight. You know, in the mainstream media, basically we only hear of Africa when shit goes wrong. I mean, even Lindsey Graham, right, the, the hawkish senator from South Carolina, he said about the Niger ambush a few months back, quote, we don't know exactly where we're at in the world militarily, uh, and we don't know what we're doing. Now, of course, later on he said, expect to see more, not less, operations in Africa. So this is not a dove. But even Lindsey Graham didn't realize we had 800 soldiers in Niger. So when four soldiers died, he was surprised. And what Nick Terse does that I think no other author really does is, is he follows AFRICOM and, and watches their operations and talks to their P, public affairs people and really just is like a, a, a watchdog agency over them and tries to predict the areas where there's going to be more conflict and maybe where we're going to make things worse. So he was paying attention to Africa, Nick Terse was, when nobody was. You know, so that's why I think his voice is so important now that Africa is back in the news, Niger and Libya and all these different places. You know... One of the points he makes that I agree with is that AFRICOM was founded on sort of like a bait and switch, you know, almost like a crazy girlfriend. Like up front, the United States military told us, hey, AFRICOM's going to really be about humanitarian assistance and training and advising. This is a non-combat mission. We're, we're developing AFRICOM to just make the continent better. And, and it's just this very unwarlike nature to it, almost like operations other than war. But that hasn't turned out to be true. There's now special operations forces in 33 of Africa's countries, 33. 
That's 17 times the rate of U.S. military presence in 2006, the course of 11 years. 17 times. And of course, all this is happening in secret. In your name, you the American people, but without your knowledge. Those soldiers who died in Niger, officially, they were just on train, advise, and assist. They weren't supposed to be in combat. The problem is, when you try to parse out, and I think, I think you'll agree with this too, you know, when you try to parse out, well, are there combat boots on the ground? Are there combat soldiers? Look, everyone wears combat boots. There's, there's no such thing as a non-combat soldier. If you're placed in another country, the minute you leave the wire, really the minute you arrive at the airport, but especially once you leave the wire, you're potentially in combat. You know, and the Obama administration was guilty of this, of constantly saying, hey, we have, we don't have any combat soldiers in so-and-so country. But you find out there's actually 400 soldiers there, and some of them are special forces. So they're clearly combat related. My question with all this is like, what for? All these operations in Africa, like, what are they supposed to accomplish? I mean, I know what AFRICOM's mission statement says. It's the same thing that every mission statement says. It's the same thing that every mission statement you got at the platoon level, the squad level, and all the way up to the combat command level. But the truth is, all these operations in Africa, 33 special operations missions in 33 countries, has not stemmed the growth of terror groups. In fact, there's way more now than there were when AFRICOM was founded. The Pentagon says there's now 21 active Islamist militant groups in Africa. Five or six times the amount that they had identified when they first formed AFRICOM. Are we making it worse? Or is it getting worse despite us? I don't think either of those is a great scenario. I don't like either of those options. What if we are the problem? Or at least, what if we're making it worse? Libya is a great example of this. You know, we overthrow the Libyan government. Hillary Clinton's behind it. The Secretary of Defense is behind it. Everyone's in favor of this. Obama's like, oh, I'm not so sure. But then he, he gets talked into it. We overthrow Gaddafi, and there's no plan for afterwards. Well, all Gaddafi's weapons in the arsenal and all the Tuareg tribesmen who are fighting on his behalf, they leave Libya, they take all those guns, they go south into Mali and Niger, and they basically destabilize those countries. It's a counterproductive presence. Like sometimes when America puts its finger on the scales, we think, oh great, we're overthrowing a dictator, but we don't realize where the blowback comes from, what the second and third order effects are. Senator Graham, who didn't know we had 800 soldiers in Africa, which is mind-blowing, given that he's on the Senate Armed Services Committee and he's a well-known hawk, he said, well, expect more, not less of these operations. So even though I didn't know there were soldiers in Africa, I, I still know it was a good idea, and so you should expect even more Africa, uh, even more U.S. soldiers in Africa, which tells me we should also expect things to get worse. If he says we should expect more activity, I'm going to predict that more American military activity is going to mean more American military deaths and more destabilization on the continent because these people don't want us there. And the Islamist militants can use our presence as a rallying cry and a recruiting tool against us. There's no way to know where the next Niger ambush will be, but it's coming. It's not where, it's when. And I don't know what you think about that. I think that this is how we're going to, to be observing warfare from here on out. I think that this, this cloud, this curtain, whatever you want to call it over, over information, the stuff that Nick, uh, Nick's been reporting on, I think that it's only going to get worse. And I also think that eventually it's going to encompass bigger army units. I think that it's going to move on to 
battalion regiment brigade you know style stuff and then three months later it's yeah these guys were were here now thankfully one thought i had about that is that soldiers talk you can't you can't get around it and so the bigger the unit the more soldiers that are talking and the more likely people are going to find out about that stuff but i don't think trump would have any qualms about telling an entire division to go there because it looks good you know, I, I, I don't know that something like that would happen. I'm just spitballing, but the, it, it, they're too much playthings to him. They're not real assets, real people, real machinery, real lives and deaths that are going to occur because of them. This is from Monica Mark at BuzzFeed. The, um, she says that the U.S.-led mission reached its target destination. BuzzFeed News can reveal for the first time that it was a militant camp across the Portis border in Mali. So I know, I, I know the last time you and I talked, we weren't actually sure how close to the border they got or whether or not they actually crossed the border. They definitely confirmed that they did in fact do it. Um, but insiders say the fatalities in the remote vicious village of Tongo Tongo were likely unavoidable had the mission been better planned, although it's unclear whether key decisions were made by soldiers or their commanders back at base. I, this is going to go into, you know, talk about the, uh, sorry, I'm drawing a blank for a second. Um, that uh, with, with the porous border idea with, and along with the light footprint thought that when you put guys out in the bush by themselves, they're going to find shit to do. Whether or not it's specifically mission essential, that's a different question. The more and more that all these units are separated out, the easier, I think, incidents like this will be to occur because someone on the ground did or will find a way to justify their choices at that time. When I heard this, when I heard this stuff, I was like, you know, somebody on the ground with them probably thought that this was a better idea than it was. Um, and there's actually more details to that as well. Um, they, uh, um, hold on one second, sorry. Okay, then here I got on to Nick Turse with the uh, uh, article of his at The Intercept. On October 5th, I made scores of calls to AFRICOM's media relations office in Stuttgart, Germany, which is where the command headquarters is located. Most went unanswered or resulted in me being hung up on. No doubt a response to that reflects AFRICOM's dissatisfaction with my reporting. In one instance, however, AFRICOM personnel did not properly disconnect the call, apparently placing it on speakerphone. As a result, for roughly one hour, conversations inside the press office from mundane exchanges Would to screaming outbursts were broadcast over stuff. the open phone line. Oh, man. Oh, fuck yes. No, it, yeah. Um, the conversations I heard confirmed that the military said that uh, Sergeant uh, David LeJohnson was alive the day after the attack. The candid discussions revealed that the command apparently entered into embargo agreements with several journalists to withhold news about Johnson being alive while military operations to rescue him were underway. Such embargoes are not unusual and are sensible when reporting on an ongoing military operation and if it could jeopardize the lives of the people involved. 
The conversations include AFRICOM spokesman Lieutenant Commander Anthony Falvo and Colonel Mark Shield, who is AFRICOM's Chief of Public Affairs and Communications Synchronization. A voice that was likely Shield said, We've been able to talk a few off the ledge, but it's going to break. By talking about it all, you all you do is put this young man's life and those who are trying to help him in further danger. Shield's mention of talking a few off the ledge appears to reference journalists who are considering reporting on Johnson. So interesting, though, though, this story had, like, you brought it up to me just the other day, how the story and changed let's see. so many times. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, we're, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, I, I got a couple more here left to do. Um, so, CNN actually revealed that the DOD notified them of the search operation and the knowledge that the initial DOD reports were false, but they didn't publish it until DOD told them they had recovered Sergeant LeJohnson's remains. The October 4th and 5th reporting stated that Sergeant LeJohnson died alongside his comrades. DOD also attempted to persuade several journalists to delay their porting, uh, reporting. You know, so much... Well, go, you go ahead, please. I know they didn't articulate this, but I am going to absolutely f say it. CNN actually admitted that they pushed a false narrative on DOD's lead. I... I, I pisses me off so bad I can't even tell you. You know, it, it's one thing for, for a, a journalistic outlet to delay things, but that's what needs to be in their reporting. That's what they need to say. They need to say this military operation is ongoing and we will report facts as they are independently verified, not this was on Twitter. So, it, it, and it needs to be a, a specific effort. Um, I also recently learned that there was a Pentagon program that used to fund retired military officers to go on the news and convince us that the Iraq war was the right thing. I don't have the program name right in front of me, but I'm going to do some research on that because it made me want to puke. Now, and this is the absolute icing on the damn cake, a couple days ago we learned that Sergeant LeJohnson actually died alongside his comrades, confirmed by the wounds he received, per the DOD coroner's report. This is in direct contradiction to all the reports that he was captured, bound, and executed with a gun shot to the back of the head. Also, he was reported to have been found two miles away from the bodies of his comrades. There's some bullshit in here somewhere. I, I, I don't know exactly where it is, but they found justification to bring in a JSOC team. I wonder if somebody thought to themselves that oh, maybe if we float the bullshit report that he might have gotten captured, we'll get some heavy hitters in here and do something, but they won't come for anything else, you know, unless they believe that we actually had somebody who could be captured. I think that it's... Um, yeah, I don't know what you think about that. Perfectly in line with the secretive nature of the operations. They're not letting media out there. They don't want the people to know what's going on. There aren't, you know, embedded media folks. So everyone's in, in the dark. The media is irresponsible in their early reporting because they take a lot of um, leaks and unverified information and they don't run it against any legitimate sources. They don't get two and three different sources that corroborate. So you've got the military being opaque. You've got the media jumping all over anything they hear because they're so desperate for a story. And this is how it happens. This is how a secretive operation that is not sold to the American people, that is not debated in Congress, that is not followed 
in any responsible way by the media. This is how an operation comes apart. This is the bombing of Laos and Cambodia in secret all over again. This is how our tragedy happens. And, and I think that this is just a perfect, perfect example of what happens when you run everything in the dark. It's one thing to keep the Bin Laden raid secret before a capture kill operation against the number one terrorist in the world. This is not that. This is training and advising, allegedly. I'm not, I'm, I gotta say, I'm not really surprised that this whole thing went south, that this whole story got fucked up. Because to me, it's par for the course. When you, when you run your operations this way, and when you cut the media out, and you cut the American people out, and you cut the Congress out, this is what you're going to get. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that you, know, you brought these parts of the story up, because they're, they're symptoms, really, rather than anything else. To me, they're symptoms of, of, of a bigger problem. And that's the overall secretiveness and the opaqueness of this mission, and the fact that the American people are not in it. They're not in the game. They don't. They're not, the military does not want the American people to debate this because I truly believe it is uh, not something they're confident enough in, that they don't necessarily have the answers that uh, an actual authoritative combative media would ask them. I don't think they have it. I don't think they want to talk to Congress about it. It's easier to keep it in the dark. That's right. And yeah, easier so for as, you know, the contractors to continue making money off all of those or, decisions. Or bring in our own act, you know, actual uh, you know, military-embedded items that we need and so then we'll rely on either the French if they happen to be around or as it turned out uh, some sort of contracted air support it's 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 unbelievable this is not the last we've heard of it either it's gonna get worse before it gets better I think uh, Matt Ho said that general rule is right. 2.5 contractors come with every soldier you know depending on exactly yeah, what the kind of mission absolutely. is but definitely like boots on the ground in Afghanistan right. yeah the uh, I feel like that too many of the stuff I hear as far as podcasts and news interviews these days does not talk about the meat and potatoes of actual military ops. And people need to see that. If, if, if you know, a civilian or prior military, they need to un fully understand yep. the cost that people are paying. And also if they want, to, if they want their kids to join. You know, how are, they, how are they going to take that lead? My oldest is 11 and I'm still kind of hesitant about yeah, what I'm going to say to him if he ever decides to. So all this secretive, non-debated nonsense is, uh, I think it's not only inappropriate, but it does raise serious questions when you start talking about, would you tell your child that enlisting in the army or the Navy is, is, is a viable decision or a good idea? I mean, I, as a parent, forget about it as a soldier, that's a whole other thing. But as a parent, I'm not certain that I'm Confident that I want my child's life to be at risk over a mission as opaque as Africa, over these training and advising missions that the American people haven't been a party to, that we haven't debated, that we don't have an authorization for military use of military force. Um, this isn't the Second World War. We're not taking Paris. That doesn't mean that because it's a different kind of war, we shouldn't fight it. It means if we're going to fight a war like this, we need to really have a debate about what it means. If it truly means that America, of all countries in the world, is the only one that's going to send its soldiers everywhere to police everything just to make sure no terrorists get there someday, you know, I'm uncomfortable with that. Because to me, it doesn't pass the smell test. It doesn't pass the common sense test. Why are we the only ones doing this? And why do we keep falling for the same the same old story that we have to fight them over there otherwise they're going to fight them here it's just bullshit it's bullshit 9-11 was planned in florida california boston and germany the planning never really happened in afghanistan the marching orders came from afghanistan 
and the next attack, and there'll be a next attack. It's not going to come from Niger. It, it, it's it's going to come from any number of places, and it's really going to be executed in on American soil or in European soil. And the idea that we're going to stop that by having soldiers in Mali, it's just mind-blowing. I have one more little thought on this before we move on here. Um, and this is uh, for something I'm working on for an upcoming story. Um, it involves ISIS and how good they have become at engineering their own weapons. Um, previous to now, it's been seen that ISIS will usually assemble their IEDs with components produced in other countries. Um, however, the story I'm, I got uh, discusses finding an IED manufacturing plant where they produce their own mortars, their own rockets, and other bomb-making materials. Um, it's strongly suggested that there's a correlation between engineering know-how and main terrorist groups. A large number of Al-Qaeda operatives, including several of the 9-11 hijackers, all had engineering degrees. Um, and what if engineering school, or maybe a particular part or parts of engineering school, went the way of nursing, law enforcement, military service, and there's some vetting involved? Because at, at a, you know, it, for certain things, you know, I don't know that a civil engineer who knows how to build bridges is going to be able to make very good bombs. On the other hand, if they know the layout of bridges really, really well, based on their knowledge, they could certainly help somebody else. But at the same so time, I worry about individuals who haven't done anything wrong having their privacy invaded yeah. as well. And I think the best way to come up with, with a decent solution is to, is to debate it in public and have a national conversation and have the American people be a party to it and then have Congress sort of decide what's the appropriate level of observation without, you know, infringing on rights. The problem is, as always, like I said of the last uh, thing on Niger, is when we do it in secret, you know, when we don't let the American people debate it, when we don't have a public conversation. Um, one of the things you brought up about how these guys had engineering degrees is really interesting to me, too, because it deflates Absolutely. another myth. And it's an uncomfortable one, because I wish the myth was true, because if the myth was true, it would be easier to solve. But you've heard it, right? The myth is that... The uh, terrorists are all poor, and it's poverty that creates terrorism. Now, I do think that poverty is an incubator of terrorism. I think most experts agree, but it's not the sole incubator of terrorism. Because a lot of the 9-11 hijackers and a lot of other um, Al-Qaeda types no, no, no. actually are uh, more educated than their peers, more educated than Arabs uh, in the aggregate, and many of them have STEM degrees, you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. That's that's a challenge because now you you know the enemy isn't a monolith. He doesn't look like you expect him to look. He's not just a Palestinian in a refugee camp who's never been to school. He could be a student who has been in the United States for a number of years and is excelling next to you in class at MIT. And that, that I mean, we're getting on a little bit of attention, but I, I think that's something that we have to talk about. And how do you combat that? I don't think you combat it by putting. Uh, 10,000 extra soldiers in, you know, wherever the next country is in, in Nigeria, you know, I don't think you combat it that way because I don't think that the threats are necessarily related. In fact, I think you may encourage that middle class, well-educated uh, Arab or Muslim or both that the United States is a force for ill in the world. And that may only further motivate him more than just the poverty. I remember seeing something years ago about, um, them there was an unusual amount of educated people doctors lawyers people who had been classically trained in a lot of different ways 
who end up in these organizations. And the, I think, I can't remember if it was an article or documentary or what, but it's, um, it pointed out that for some of the ideas of ISIS, for some of the ideas of Al-Qaeda, that that intellectual separation from the real world allows them to push forward to something bigger that they that they're able to see beyond right, the immediacy because for people right. that can't why would you do it at all um but it's really important to under exactly and they don't understand the exact thing you just said is that it's not the correlation is not with people who are poor there's poor people all over the world that aren't blowing stuff up but it's not because they're poor although yeah it is a factor but I mean, the Taliban. Yeah, poverty doesn't push people to be, become murderous just based the on Taliban poverty is, alone. Is largely illiterate, largely uneducated village dwellers from rural Afghanistan. I met these guys at the, you know, at the business end of an AK-47, and I met them once they were captured, and I met them when they were acting like they were just farmers. And the reality is that the Taliban has no extra territorial or, or or transnational goals. The Taliban's goal is to control the villages of rural Afghanistan. It's not to fly airliners into the Pentagon. That's what happens with the more impoverished element of the Islamists, is they're more locally based. When you start talking about the transnational threats, the kind of guys that can pull off a 9-11, those guys are going to tend, like you said, to be middle class, uh, a little better educated, uh, and more likely to think globally, perhaps because of their education, perhaps because they are bred uh, through their education to think. Uh, in a global way, so uh, this is important stuff because it, it, you know, we're great at ranting. Both of us are great at getting off topic, but the thing is, we are on topic because it relates to Niger, it relates to Africa, because it relates to if the enemy is not the way we think he is. If the enemy is not the scarecrow or the straw man that we've created, then maybe we're not fighting him right. Maybe more troops in more countries that are poor is not the way to stop the next 9/11. Was it Sun Tzu saying, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a thousand battles? Something like that? Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can always go back to that, and there's, there's, there's wisdom. Okay, guys, we're moving on to missile defense. Um, between North Korea's recent missile tests and the news pushing hard, the story of American-made missile defenses... Uh, that are protect, protecting the Riyadh airport. There's been a lot in the news about it. This is from Defense One by Joe Sercioni, I think is his name. Um, the following references a mid-September missile test that came close to Japan, but was unable to be hit by any missile defenses in the region. The key word here is over, like way over, like 770 kilometers over Japan at the apogee of the, um, of the launch. None of the theater ballistic missile defense weapons in existence can reach that high. It is hundreds of kilometers too high for the Aegis interceptors deployed on Navy ships off Japan, even higher for the THAAD system in Korea and, and Guam. Way, way too high for the Patriot system in Japan, which engage largely uh, within the atmosphere. All of these are basically designed to hit a missile in the post-mid-course or terminal phase, when it is on its way down, coming more or less straight at the defending system. Patriot is meant to protect relatively small areas, such as ports or air bases. THAAD defends a larger area. The Advanced Aegis system theoretically could defend thousands of square kilometers. But could we intercept the missile before it climbed that high? There is almost no chance 
of hitting a North Korean missile on its way up unless an Aegis ship is deployed very close to the launch point, perhaps even in North Korean waters. Even then, it would have to chase the missile, a race it is very unlikely to win. In the only one to two minutes of warning time any system would have, the probability of a successful engagement drops to zero. So, recently in the news, there's been discussion about that a missile launched by the Houthis was actually able to be intercepted at the Riyadh airport. And it's just not true. Um, a team led by analyst Jeffrey Lewis and his, um, and his group at the Middlebury Institute for International Affairs unco uncovered a different account. Governments lie about the effectiveness of these systems, or they're misinformed, and that should worry the hell out of us. By analyzing scores of photos and other social media available from the incident, Lewis and his team de determined that the five shots fired by Saudi Arabia's Patriot batteries likely missed their target altogether, and the Houthis' incoming Birkin H-2 short-range ballistic missile flew well over the kingdom's defenses, but missed its target, believed to be the Riyadh airport. The missile instead appears to have struck about a half mile away, a distance Lewis called, and I love this, a pretty normal miss rate for a Scud in reference to the Soviet-era missile on which the Houthis' latest and most powerful weapon is based. If Saudi Arabia's defenses hit the missile at all, however, Lewis's team found that it must have been hit only on its rear tube, after that useless part had already separated from the deadly explosive warhead. While Houthi rebels may present a major threat to U.S. forces, the same Patriot system that appears to have failed again uh, against the insurgents is also trusted as a major line of defense against a much more powerful really pro foe, North Korea. How effective, you know, our air defense systems are, especially our strategic air defense. And the propaganda that's going into being um, how effective they are, when they were successfully able to be used, um, you know, it's, 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 some of the stuff I found was much, much more applauditory about the about how the missiles had worked and some were just not um and this last little bit right here in a november 15th interview ricky ellison chairman and founder of the alexandria Virgin virginia based missile defense advocacy alliance not only confirmed raytheon's 100 plus figure that was the figure that they had actually officially given for their intercepts uh, but insisted it was a conservative count between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, there have been over 150 intercepts of Yemen-launched missiles. The Missile Defense Project of the Washington-based Center for Strategic and International Studies shows 40 intercepts and 18 strikes since the war began between Saudi Arabia and uh, Yemen in March 2015. However, the group did include the latest Patriot intercept of a Yemen-launched tactical ballistic missile on November 4th, which indicates its data is not completely up-to-date or inconclusive. So there it is, guys. It, 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 it doesn't look good. When you hear people talk about missile defense, know that that's crap. Know that I mean, right now, at the very least. And yes, when we have, we have better close-in-range weapons, but nothing that's actually going to stop that stuff. And especially not something in this situation where... Saudi Arabia has painted the Houthis as entirely terrorists and um, possible I don't know about possible self-defense scenarios in that I, I but right. anyway it doesn't it 
A lot of this goes back. It's to not fair to their side. <laughs> That's the simplest way. There's I can all put that it, so. about the uh, Star Wars Strategic Defense Initiative under Reagan, and you know, pretty much all serious scientists agree agreed that there it, the SDI was was unworkable, and it and uh, and from a technological standpoint, and even if it did exist technologically, it was unaffordable. So this this game of overselling what missile defense can do for you is. Uh, at least three decades old, if not more. So we shouldn't be surprised that this, that this is happening. It, it benefits arms manufacturers. It benefits uh, congressional members who want different pieces for missile defense to be built in their districts. It benefits those people to oversell these programs. But it does not benefit the American people or the South Korean people or whoever are counting on these defenses to be foolproof. And it also joins along a long-standing tradition of overselling American power, especially whatever it happens to be. And uh, there was another article that I, I didn't include this week, but it was about the all the senior enlisted for all the branches testifying before Congress recently that there is no readiness crisis for the military. There has been one for a long time, and lots and lots of senior people will talk about it. But when the Sergeant Major of the Army goes in before Congress... No, sir. It's all good. We're good to go. Tell us where to go. I know that that's a, that's a standard line for military leaders, and I get why it is, but we have to become start being more intellectually honest about this stuff. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's just, it's just the, the, the degrading of our, of our knowledge as a nation, of civics in general, that just kind of pinholes that even more. Is I know I've um, I don't remember what the name of the system is that they have in Israel. Is that iron? Is that the iron um, dome? I'm not sure. For uh, for some of their stuff, but that stuff is more for rockets and everything. But that that's it. Yeah, iron dome. That's it. Um, but you can't allow people. Well, I can say you can't allow people to make assumptions. Of course, people are going to assume that they're very powerful. They do their job. All those kind of things. There has to be a louder voice on the non-assumption part. Um, and I had this thought while I mentioned when I mentioned to you earlier about that Pentagon program involving the retired officers for Iraq, that I know there are a few programs or a few organizations that have stuff like that. Um, you know, Veterans for Peace is a good one, um, but specifically about approaching former senior officers who may be amenable to it under the idea that we're trying to. We're not doing anything tactically anymore. This is our deployments are, you know, we're not, you know, we're not actively, um, we're not allowing, allowing the metal to meet the meat. It's really interesting because um, if we were more so. honest about the capabilities of missile defense and we weren't overselling it, then we'd have to make different decisions and plan accordingly. And we'd have to deal with a responsible, informed public that can question some of America's activities around the world and whether or not they're having the effect that they're being sold to have. All right. Well, sports fans, I'm going to end on a little bit of a lighter note for our headlines today and talk Army, Navy, football. Specifically, one article called Three Sisters, Three Academies, Four Generations of Service in the Military Times. Here's the deal. First of all, Army won again, 14-13. Amazing game. Uh, Army had lost like... 15 years in a row. In the last two years, we've won in very close games. Very exciting football. And I like Army-Navy football. 
Uh, I do. I like Army football. I watch it every week. Despite all my skepticism about U.S. foreign policy, about militarism in our culture, I think the Army-Navy game is one appropriate kind of singular day for military pomp. It's the day I'm okay with it. I don't want to see it in the NFL every single week. I don't need to see uniforms and jets and stuff on every single normal Sunday, but Army-Navy football is kind of cool, and it is an opportunity to showcase some of the more interesting scholar athletes our country has to offer because these kids are not the sort of kids who go to Miami. They're not the kind of kids playing in the SEC. Um, they have uh, higher academic standards generally and uh, and also obviously a lot more commitment to uh, federal service, which I think is pretty cool. And they really do, even though they're officer cadets, they still, I think, represent the Army and the Navy pretty well. Now, there's good and bad to the military legacies of so many of these kids, though. And that's why I chose this article. Three sisters. Okay, that's interesting in the first place because I think a lot of Americans still associate military service, military academy service with men. But there are more and more women at the military academies. When I taught at West Point, women were up to 25%. Uh, and they were, they were reaching 30% in the future. So, I mean, this is a lot more than, you know, even 10, 15 years ago when I was a cadet when they were only about 10%. So, three sisters, three academies, four generations of service. The women that were highlighted, one in the uh, Air Force, one Navy, and, and one Army, you know, they, they, they are military legacies. They, they, they come from a military family, and this is who's largely serving in the military today. It's a warrior caste, you know, versus an apathetic public. So most of the country doesn't know anything about the military. There's no draft, doesn't feel any attachment to the military, and then it's these families that are serving. And... I ran into this at West Point so often, both as a cadet and then as an instructor. You know, every one of my classes, I taught classes of between 12 and 15 students at a time. I could count on at least three or four of them to be the child of a graduate of West Point, and even more of them to be children of other soldiers, officers, or enlisted. That is a very odd thing. It may sound obvious, but it has not always been the case. Another example is one of my roommates at West Point. His name's Logan Collins, great guy, aviator, flies Blackhawks. He was fifth generation West Point. And that was not all that uncommon. There were a couple of other guys in my graduating class who were also three, four, or five generation West Pointers. It's good and bad. It's admirable service, but it speaks to this caste that's doing all the fighting. And, and the American people aren't part of it. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not actors. One of the things that made my students special, I thought, when I was teaching there, was their whole idea of like selfless service combined with the intellectual rigor that's required to go there. But at the same time, as I watched Army-Navy and I, and I look at my old students, four of whom are starters in the football team this year, and I think about how many of them come from families that do this year after year, generation after generation, it does make me a little sad that more Americans don't have skin in the game. And we've talked about this in our episode about conscription and about national service. Nevertheless, keeping it light, Army-Navy, which just passed last uh, last week, it is a week, I think, to cheer along, you know, kind of watch a different kind of football, and uh, but also to ponder what we've asked of those kids, what we've asked of service members, officer and enlisted, cadet, you know, and sergeant. And uh, But nevertheless, as always, I was cheering for the good guys, Army, and uh, I'll be cheering for them next year. And I hope we can three-peat. Yeah, I... Man, it was hard uh, during being being in service in the all the years where 
I don't. How many years was it we went without a win against Navy? It was 15. It, the last time we had won was when I was a freshman, a plebe at West Point in 2001. Right after 9 11, it was the next. Uh, wow. No, I. Uh, there were always a few people that I served with that really, really loved the Army Navy game. And my, uh, my first LT, he was a West Pointer, and he, he absolutely loved it too. Um, these days, I. I have such a hard time disassociating football from the trauma that it causes people physically. Um, you know, it, 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 in some ways, depending on how you want to look at it, that could be damage that could rival combat wounds in certain ways. You know, the, just, the, just the intense damage it does to someone's head. Um, and, of course, the rest of their body. I'm just thinking about concussions and CTE right now, but that doesn't mean those are the only things that football players end up with. But... Um, I think the legacy points you brought up are very, very important. Um, we can't allow new military dynasties to be built in America if people want to do things like that when you only bring back, a, when, when the majority that you bring back in is already affiliated with the military. And you also silence all of the outside voices that could be included in the conversation about the military. People make this really dumb assumption that service members are the only people that have military stories and they don't and you know your folks probably have stories about you going to west point um you know my family has lots of stories about me that are they're also military stories but all these voices have to be seen as valid um if if, if not then we're not actually sending an actual assortment of our nation both color creed nationality gender and of thought of people who actually think differently and can come up with new solutions for things. Absolutely. Such a good point when you talk about the mm. diversity of thought, not just race and creed and all those things. I would say that on average, it's it's less bad than it was before, actually. It's actually improved, but still to this day, I would, I would estimate that an average of 8 out of 10 of my cadets entered the academy as 18-year-olds with firmly right-wing political beliefs. I, I mean, not just right of center, but firmly right-wing, like hard right, 80%. That's who I was dealing with. Uh, and I love these kids. You know, so this isn't like a, an attack on them. I loved my students. But every day I was fighting that. I was fighting that echo chamber that they had all grown up in. And so when I would ask tough questions about American history and I would question some of the crimes of American history and some of the dark side of the American character, these students didn't know what to do because they respected me because I had rank and had been a combat veteran. So at one, in one way, they wanted to respect me. And then in another way, they just hated what I was saying so much. And, and, and they, they couldn't even believe an officer in the military wouldn't be just as right wing as them. And I think that does speak to the, the diversity of thought that is missing when a warrior cast that are all descendants of other warriors, if that's the only people that are serving, it's, it's unlikely we're gonna get that kind of diversity. I know my experience was much the same. I, I seven, eight, nine of, uh, out of 10 people that I serve with usually lean the same way. And we, we all come with our own biases. And that, that's one thing that growing up is supposed to deal with, I think a bit is to try to mix some of that around and 
I know generally if you meet, you know, veterans are, are usually more accepting of other races. They're, they've seen a portion of the world that other people generally don't see. And that's the voice that needs to be amplified more. I know I, I say this a lot on the podcast, but it's, I think it's the most important thing that we can do is to elevate those silent voices, elevate people like Sergeant um, Le Johnson and, and, you know, his sacrifice and, and, and ask those tough questions. Um, and certainly we'll have lots of other people on that will help us answer some of those tough questions. But that part of it has to be considered. Not everybody is, is I want to say nobody's okay with this, but I feel that there are people who are much more accepting of U.S. deaths, of U.S. service member deaths than others. And there needs, you know, it, it is, you know, is it okay with you because you understood the mission and believed in the mission and your, your kid who became a soldier too believed in the mission or because you simply support the military, you simply fall in that line and, you know, and, and don't question as you move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, I was going to ask you about that, about, you know, from, from the enlisted angle on was it the same experience? And it sounds like it was, it sounds like that same lack of diversity and that same sort of agreement on the political right was just as prominent in the enlisted ranks as it was in the officer ranks. I, I sort of suspected that, but it's particularly interesting to get your viewpoint. And I think that's one of the things that we can do on the pod is provide those two different and yet often overlapping viewpoints from the officer and the enlisted angle. Because if we do that, which I think both of us do fairly well, we're getting at a, a deeper understanding of the military, not just a surface one. No, I, I, I do have one thought, though, about the enlisted side differing from the officer side is that enlisted soldiers i think until they reach a certain point in their service they are still more connected to the regular world than senior enlisted and officers and i say that for a couple different reasons one is that officers and senior ncos usually have to work a lot more it's it's the joes that get a little bit more time and it's a little bit but it is you know a little more time they also only went through basic training, which is not nearly as long as four years at West Point, as being a Mustang who goes through OTC and becomes an officer. There is a big difference there. And so I think that there's some really unique views that could be got out of those junior enlisted people. Um, you know, there's a reason we were just called the E4 Mafia. You know, there's, there's, but uh, <laughs> that's more of a joke than anything else, but um, that. It can't, it can't be one chorus of voices coming up with solutions. So that's how we come up with things like slavery, like segregation. Those, and those are not American. Those are, that's not the way to amplify American voices. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a good point. And I, I, I agree with that. I think that especially the junior enlisted are much closer to the society that they serve than the professional class, which is the uh, officers and the senior NCOs who are essentially lifers, usually, um, yeah, yeah. or have been in the system longer. Because the system's damaging. I mean, and I don't mean that because I dislike military service or because I don't respect the army or the people I serve with. That's not true. But any system, any large bureaucracy is damaging because when you're a company man and when you've been in that system too long, it does take away your perspective and your ability to think broadly. Not for everyone. There are exceptions. I used to think I was an exception, but even I was a part of the system. And as I look back, I don't recognize me as a lieutenant or a captain because that me eight, ten years ago is different from me now. And, and I think only with hindsight do I realize the extent to which I was, I was on the inside, the extent to which I was a company man. 
And that's not just a military problem, but perhaps it's more visceral and damaging in the military because Absolutely. of the responsibility I, that the military has. Um, I've thought about that, you know, maybe like it's a good idea that certain groups of leaders get, you know, that it's, you only have certain core positions for a certain amount of time. I think it's really good. You know, like drill sergeants can only do it usually for like two years. There are a lot of other very hard jobs that fit into the officer category, you know, non, non-drill sergeant jobs, obviously, but so many ones that are that much taxing on you. And like you mentioned about it, you know, being that becomes your group, that becomes your way of thinking. You almost start to feel weird when you wear your normal clothes after a deployment because you spent so long wearing the uniform you wore on deployment. How do you... Uh, how do you find that separation? You know, if you're, if you've, if you've been in that long, like you said, you know, is that there's, there's no recognizing going back to, you know, certain years of your service. How do you keep your head above water and actually see the forest for the trees? Absolutely. Tough question. And one, I think we're gonna have to get at in other episodes of the pod. And as we talk about a whole bunch of other issues, because this is going to be a recurring theme, I think is the definition of military service and the, the diversity or lack of, and also how the military interacts with the civilian world and whether or not it's disconnected. I think it is. I think we both agree about that. And, and, it's, and it's an issue we're gonna have to deal with because it does touch everything. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. All right, so we're gonna talk today a little bit about military sexual assault, the controversy of sexual assault. It seems appropriate in this era of Harvey Weinstein, Al Franken, Roy Moore, who thankfully lost, despite being a West Point grad. Okay, I'm glad that the West Point grad lost. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay, that's one West Pointer. Yeah, it's one West Pointer saying that. Okay, and I think some. I haven't heard a West Point officer say that yet, but this West Point officer is proud he lost. But anyway, military sexual assault is a highly controversial topic, just like all sexual matters. I mean, they they tend to be that way, and. I decided that in order to talk about military sexual assault, it was best for us to, to read um, not only just articles on this topic, but also a lengthy, uh, I believe, you know, 80-ish page report from the Congressional Research Service that sort of lays this out. For those of you who don't know, the Congressional Research Service is an awesome uh, resource for information. It's generally bipartisan. It's generally nonpartisan. Uh, and it lays out almost any issue. Whatever you want to know about, it lays out both sides fairly well. So some of the questions we're going to talk about today are best seen in, from at least my perspective, which is the perspective of the commander, you know, the platoon leader or the company commander or a young major, which is the experience I've had. And then we're going to hear, you know, you're, you're going to, to talk about from the sergeant's hatch, from the squad leader's hatch. And I think that those are both important ways. So the question that comes up with sexual assault in the military is, you know, how pervasive is it? What are the issues, processes, and concerns that surround sexual assault in the military? And what I mean from the commander's hatch is it raises a whole lot of questions. Like, can commanders be objective when looking at sexual assault within their units and you know, taking action from a legal or administrative perspective? Do company commanders, do young officers, remember the average commander of a soldier in combat, his legal commander on average is between 26 and 28 years old, sometimes younger. Does he have the requisite legal training to adjudicate these cases? If not, what's the right level of adjudication? Should it be someone of higher rank or should it be a lawyer, a trained lawyer? 
which military officers are not. We have limited training. We have some more than your average citizen, but we do not have legal training uh, at the extent of like law school. Another question is, you know, is there a problem with in-house discipline? By in-house, I mean the military handling its own cases under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Is there, in fact, on the opposite end, is there too much pressure within the military to go straight to a court-martial because this has become such a highly politicized and highly controversial uh, issue? So th those are the big questions I think I'm going to be grappling with. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you, would, if you want to say something about sort of from the squad leader and the team leader's perspective, what big issues do you think come out that, that we'll be talking about here? Um, I think that you're, you're going to find a core of the problem is centered in that area. I think that that disconnect between ordinary soldiers and the next echelon up next to the, you know, up to E7 and, and company grade commanders, that that's where the most work on this needs to happen because that's literally where the metal meets the meat. Um, so that, 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 that was, that's my only thought starting off. So. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's really important that we come at this from the, all those different angles. And admittedly, the sexual assault issue happens generally at the enlisted level, although it happens a lot among cadets and also sometimes among officers, but the adjudication is largely an officer centric process by the nature of the uniform code of military justice. The first sort of legally, uh, responsible person tends to be the company commander. So not even a platoon leader. The youngest officers don't play much of a role in this, except in the administrative side. So some of the things we got to talk about are whether the, the Uniform Code of Military Justice provides soldiers or victims uh, or uh, alleged assailants, right, because both sides are matter, does it provide them more or less rights than the civilian courts? state or federal courts and that's an important question and, and i think something that we have to remember about the military is we do handle most things in-house the vast majority of crimes that occur in the military or on a military installation are adjudicated by military commanders they have legal representation and they have legal advice that they get but it's military commanders armor officers infantry officers military police officers you name it most of them are combat officers and uh, are not trained in the law, or at least have not attended law school. And one of the other things that's interesting about this is there are really two pipelines of justice in the military, whether it's sexual assault or anything else. And this is important to understand because it brings up the question of double jeopardy. And I've heard a lot of soldiers and a lot of officers complain about this. I've complained about it at times. For example, sometimes an, uh, an alleged uh, criminal or uh, in this case assaulter can face administrative punishment loss of rank, loss of pay, loss of promotion opportunities, career being affected, and can also be charged under the Uniform Court of Military Justice, which is the standard legal system, very similar to federal law. So when it comes to sexual assault, is this a crime that is pervasive enough and obscene enough that it ought to be handled outside of that military system? And, and I think that's one of the things we have to talk about. One reason I bring up the two pipelines is oftentimes in the military, victims have said in their surveys that they feel um, they, they don't want to report a sexual assault or even sexual harassment because they fear administrative punishment. Well, what do I mean by that? And, and I think you could probably speak to this a lot um, because you, you had men and women in your unit. Is that correct? Yeah, so you've probably seen, I, I bet you've got interesting stories about a lot of this, but oftentimes these sort of crimes, sexual assaults, they may happen when there's alcohol involved. They may happen um, when 
the victim was doing something that's against you know either the law or at least administrative military law like drinking underage and they fear these victims that if they report what happened to them they may face administrative punishment so they're thinking yeah well maybe sergeant so-and-so who assaulted me might get what he deserves but i gotta watch out because i was drinking and i'm only 20. or you know i was behind the wheel and i shouldn't have been because i had too many drinks or i was off post when i really wasn't allowed to be i mean there's a lot of ways that these people could fear the administrative punishment so how do we protect victims right i mean that that's i don't know if you've seen any experience with this but i i've been told in red surveys where you know that's a big fear absolutely i i if it were up to me, I would want to establish a system that is totally separate, um, somewhere in the vein of um, uh, defense attorneys that you can get, you know, if you're actually accused of something. But I don't see a way to remove the convolution between the victim and their commander or wh- whoever it is is in charge at that point of, of handling the whatever their whatever their complaint is um, that. There's too many ways that the victim can get re- re-victimized just going through that, just going through that whole process. And so, and like what I mentioned earlier about that, I think, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, mid-level NCOs are, are the most important part of this is that it's then on team leaders and squad leaders to get that soldier to the people they need to see, whether that is taking them to the hospital, whether that is taking them to legal defense, whether um, all, all those things. And so you have one shitheady five or one shitheady six, and that person doesn't get the stuff they need. Maybe even by, I mean, they still may get their complaint to the commander, but by the time that complaint complaint gets there, the story is much more convoluted. The mil- it's, it's almost the military's version of telephone. Um, and so it, it could, if, if someone was so inclined, and I'm not saying this about all E5s, E6s in, in that arena, I'm saying that the position is ripe for someone to do the wrong thing. And especially if you're dealing with soldiers that are new to the military and, um, and females, you know, it's just, it, it, it's, it's a very different environment. I can't say that I've seen very many female soldiers that really took to everything that happens in the army environment. I, I, I don't you know I don't, I don't mean that as bad against women I'm, I'm talking about personality wise I did know a few that were absolutely awesome however the proportion may be the same on men's side you know is that how well could this person mentally handle everything that we do we've been talking throughout the the episode about the toll that soldiers pay um, as they go through their time in the service and how that's not always related to combat this is one of those areas where Someone could have never, ever been deployed and yet go through something horribly traumatic and, and not even be able to be a soldier anymore. So I, I think, you know, I, 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 I don't want to sound like an asshole, but there, there has to be a, a, a balancing there because once someone is, has been made into a victim of something, you have to find a way to do the best things for them as the victim in addition to their service as a soldier. And I think the commander's um, and I mean more senior commanders, not not mid-level guys. I think that they are reluctant to hand that over because it means that some of their best people may fall, as in what we've seen with Harvey Weinstein in recent months. I firmly believe that the sexual assault culture in the military is much, much, much more harsh than in the average world um, for a, a, no, a number of reasons. Hold on one second. <laughs> 
sorry, my lips were drying up. Um, but, um, but the mission, that's the thing. That's the thing that always comes down to what about the mission? We're going to have to cancel training because you have to take this soldier to this location. We're going to have to, you know, it, 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 you then, it becomes a fight with a lot of other stuff. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, who has been floated as a possible 2020 candidate for president for the Democrats, she's really been leading the fight on taking this issue out of the hands of the military itself to either um, military lawyers uh, exclusively or to uh, civilian oversight. And she's gotten a lot of flack. A lot of people in the military don't like this because, like you mentioned, the military does like to handle things in-house. It does like the idea of its commanders adjudicating good order and discipline, which, of course, is the primary role, right, or the primary importance in the military. But she argues, and there's a lot of debate on both sides, that there are limits to the UCMJ system and that victims of sexual assault may not uh, get the protections that they deserve or they may not even get the justice that they seek. And... She may have some points, you know, because like you mentioned, if Sergeant so-and-so is a sexual predator and assaults a soldier off-duty, whether it be someone in the unit or someone outside the unit, the commander may have trouble believing that or being willing to adjudicate that fairly if Sergeant so-and-so is also one of his best go-to yep. guys. And those two things are not mutually exclusive, you know. Sergeant X could be the best squad leader in combat and in training that the commander has, but also be a predator when he drinks alcohol or is in an off, exactly. you know, off duty. And so, how do you work those two together? And oh, by the way, and I saw this as a as an officer at West Point dealing with cadets um, who were victims of sexual assault. The victim might be a, a shitbag. I'm not saying the victim often is, but in other words, the, the perpetrator, the alleged assailant, could be a phenomenal soldier, and the victim could, in fact, be a, a piece of shit soldier. And who's the commander going to want to protect exactly. or believe? We all like to think that we are completely unbiased when it comes to criminal matters, when it comes to protecting victims, when it comes to these issues. But I, I don't know if that's within human nature. I think we all have our biases, and, and I'm not certain that the command, and Senator Gillibrand's certainly not certain that the command is always able to do this. You know, And another thing I think that we have to remember is, like you said, the military culture might be worse than the civilian culture when it comes to issues of sexual assault. I'll talk about West Point for a second, because this is a big problem with military academies, Air Force in particular, but all, all, all three, Army, Navy, and Air Force. Hazing was a big problem at West Point. It still is to a smaller extent. They've really, really clamped down on it since I was a cadet and, and more so since years before I was a cadet. But there's sexism at the United States Military Academy, just like there's sexism in the military. This is a masculine boys club. We've got to be honest about that. It's changing, but it still is. I, I mean, I'm sure you probably saw that to a large extent. Right? I did. I did. It, it, and it, um, it, it, it did not... It did, no one ever seemed to take stock of the who they are actually leading and that it, that sometimes it's the leader that needs to change and not the soldier it can't always be Absolutely. screaming at them about one particular thing when you as a leader haven't done anything to help them to solve that one particular thing and that's why i think you know it's 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 just way too ripe it's just way too ripe for for people to get forgotten for stories to be changed so that by the time the victim comes forward they're not looked on as an honest person anymore or like you said you know if they happen to have broken another rule 
and then something happened to them that doesn't change what happened to them but there is that fear and there's so much fear it's a, it's a, it, being a soldier you live in a fear environment it, it, it determines on you know your your own mental faculties is whether or not you're able to keep going but the the screaming and the yelling and the smoking and the um you know and doing stuff out in nasty weather and it's already harsh to begin with there are already so many things up against you so if you have that victim who doesn't want to be feel embarrassed who doesn't want to come forward because her her sergeant is, is a shithole um and then this person is left dealing with a traumatic experience entirely on their own where had they been helped that may have been a stellar soldier right there that you let slip away. That may have been somebody who's going to be the next CG of Tradecom or, or you know, something really huge. Because, but because she did not find hope in the people that led her, she said, fuck you, I'm done with this. That's, that's, that's the point. That's the idea. I think you bring up an excellent point, and it, it relates to something I heard about the civilian side of this, you know, the Me Too movement and all the sexual assault that's coming out is one of the real tragedies of is it robs the workplace of the talent of women who were too either um, hurt or too intimidated to enter the yes. workforce, yes. you know, or to enter it at the level that they were capable of. So, I mean, we're losing potential. The military's losing potential. And the military is increasingly technical and increasingly intellectual, and the physical is becoming less and less important in certain instances. And so we are missing about 50% of the talent pool in this country if we're not taking women or if we're not gathering the best women or if we're not being the kind of place that appears welcoming to women who are 50% of the population, 51%. The and States. also the equipment and the way that it's designed. There are ways to design Humvees, to design things that allow people of a smaller stature or a smaller amount of strength to accomplish the same task. But generally speaking, we don't think those kind of thoughts as moving forward. How can we help everybody? You know, it. it, it I know there's the old adage about, um, like from G.I. Jane, when um, uh, her her command master chief told her about pulling a guy out of a burning tank, and that's how, how he won the Navy Cross. Um, you know, could you have done that? He put to her and everything. And at the end, she drug that guy out of the way. I mean, she didn't pull him out of a burning tank, but... At what point are we going to let people try? At what people are we going to give them the tools and say, do awesome things, and they do awesome things, and you say, hell yeah. But, you know, it, 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 that, that thought has to be had by somebody. They have to recognize that the military has to be dealt with in that, in that way. And also, we haven't even begun to talk about, like, what about sex assault for men? That right, which is which is which is a major issue, and even less likely to be reported statistically. Absolutely, it happens. I think I think it was like thirty something, thirty five percent for men, and then um, up up into the forties for ladies. But yeah, the the issue of reporting it is far less. I cannot even begin to imagine the personal embarrassment that I would feel if something like that happened to me, and then having to walk forward and wanting to do something, and wanting to still be a soldier, wanting to continue my profession. That's what it has. And, and, and right there, that whole thing is that I bet there is a lot more that isn't being reported just because people haven't been given that right, uh, that opportunity, even even higher than our statistics say. Absolutely. I don't even know if the stats are, are accurate because the reporting is probably so low that we, we would be appalled if we knew because it's already appalling how much is being 
uh, reported. I think 4% of women surveyed in 2016 said that they were a victim of a sexual assault in the previous year. And about 0.6% of men, well, that doesn't sound too bad, but if 5%, give or take, of our women, 1 in 20, are being assaulted, not harassed, but assaulted sexually. That's a lot of people. And that's the reported amount. So who knows? We don't know how, you know, I mean, some people aren't likely to, even on an anonymous survey, aren't likely to admit that, but... All right, so we were talking about the reporting metrics and just how disturbing it is that 4% of women and, you know, half a percent of men reported an actual sexual assault last year, in uh, fiscal year 2016 at least, because we don't know how many people are actually reporting that. And there are major limitations to the military metrics here. I mean, you've taken a command climate survey, I imagine, or several. And of course, that's the kind of stuff that gets asked, you know, at least on the more recent command climate surveys, they've added a lot of questions about sexual assault that may not have existed when, when you were taking them earlier on in your time in the military. But it's always, would you feel comfortable reporting a crime? Would you feel comfortable reporting a sexual assault to your commander? And, you know, depending on the unit, the numbers aren't always great. You know, there's not always that level of confidence. So I think that that speaks to the limitations of the military metrics, which are very statistical in their nature, as they always oh, yeah. are. Um, we don't know. If 4% are reporting that they've been sexually assaulted, is it 8%? Is it 5 Who knows? Is it 20 And especially with the men, it may be exponentially higher than the reports because, like we talked about, so many men are just so mortified by the situation of maybe feeling like they were a victim of a sexual assault that they wouldn't dare speak of it publicly. Or maybe even wouldn't speak of it in an anonymous survey, just for fear of admitting that it happened or for fear that it wouldn't be truly anonymous. When you talk about when you talk about men in particular, you have to talk about hazing within the military. I mean, everyone's sort of sick of hearing it, and the military has done a lot better recently at stifling the hazing, but it exists. I mean, it exists in the military academies, it exists in airborne units, it exists in every unit. And sometimes the sort of sexism or even sort of homoerotic nature of certain hazing could lead to some of these male-on-male sexual assaults. Hazing also plays a big role in military academies uh, in women. You know, one of the things to keep in mind, and I think this would blow a lot of Americans' minds, is like not a single woman was allowed to graduate or even could go to the military academy until 1980. First class came in in 1976. The first women graduated in 1980. Talk about heroes. These girls went through hell. Uh, I knew some of the women who were in those early classes. One of my tactical officers, she graduated in 1993, so just 13 years after women started graduating. And she was in B1, Company B1 at the Military Academy, which back then they used to call it um, the boys of B1. And the reason they called the B1 the boys is because B1 had a culture of refusing to let women graduate from their company. They would haze the shit out of women in a number of ways until they all quit. And then they were proud of themselves that they were the boys, quote, wow. boys of B1, right? So this was going on well into the 1990s. And, and I think it's important to understand that culture in the military. When we question Senator Gillibrand's plan to take this out of the hands of the military, when we criticize her, as many of us often have, or as many people often have, I think we need to keep some of those stories in mind. How new the female experience in the active duty army is, um, how sort of toiled it's been, and, and how much has been put in the path of these women, 
and uh, how pervasive Jesus. it is. I think even today, you know, it, this this tactical officer of mine told me a story about how she went to uh, company athletics, basically playing sports, um, which is the thing you do at the military academy every afternoon. Um, she went out to play her sport, and then when she came back, she went into her uh, sock and underwear drawer um, and uh, opened it up to find that um, dozens of men had um, ejaculated into her drawer. And the message was clear. You don't belong here, and we are going to use our sexuality and harassment to make it clear to you in this grotesque way that you don't belong here. And that was 1993, which isn't that long ago. When you really think about it. And so if you think this stuff is gone, yes, it may be better, but the culture's still there. And you mentioned it as well when you said what it was like serving with women and, and how difficult the military life can be for, for a woman. And as a bunch of white males, it's difficult to put ourselves in those situations. But I think we do have to be very empathetic. Absolutely. I, I As you were describing that, going through the, talking about the academy and everything, I had a I had a thought just about how displaced my last deployment was from everything. Um, you know, my squad lived with the company of Marines at one point, and I know that there's a lot of things that are non-sexual assault related that I would not have wanted to go to them for help for. Um, in addition to that, you know, it's just it, 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 how detached our mission is becoming these days and that if you're that detached from everything, your only lifeline may be the next leader in your chain of command. If that person is facilitating somebody being victimized or they're even doing the victimizing themselves, what, what does a person do? And, you know, it, it, um, you know, even if, you know, spitballing here, what if they were to take a sat phone and they called the closest CID office, you know, would they be able to come out and help them? You know, would they actually get on a convoy or get on a bird and come out to a little, you know, fob whatever, little cop whatever, and do something, actively do something, but just from the request of the soldier. It wasn't a, not a chain of command request, not anything else, but direct from, you know, from victim to law enforcement official. Um, and so it, and that's, and that's the thing that, that, that men are going to continually be using as a reason we have to leave it in the chain of command because we're we're also stretched out there you know we're in syria we're in iraq we're in afghanistan we're in saudi arabia yeah that's a good point because we're talking in many of these cases that we read in the congressional research service report most of that stuff is either um, garrison or home station assaults but when you look at the when yeah. you look at statistics yeah. which i have not seen on uh, the statistics specifically on during deployments, I would imagine, I would speculate that the rates probably rise of the uh, the likelihood of the assaults, if not if for no other reason than because of the distance from wives, girlfriends, or civilian women, uh, but also to, because of the combat stress. And then I would also surmise that the reporting levels are probably even lower because of the things that you just described. Yeah. Um, someone I served with, uh, she actually went AWOL prior to her second deployment because she was assaulted on her first deployment and was so terrified of it happening again that she would not go back. And that was the, um, 
soldier I told you about who got sent to Fort Irwin, uh, work in the mailroom. Um, I'd, I'd really like to try to try to sit down with her. I don't, I don't know if, if she would be willing, but that right there, you know, is that, you know, it wasn't the combat. The combat was, I don't, I, I was never an issue for her. It was about knowing that there's the chance for it to happen again because it already did happen the first time under the same system. And what do you do? You know, what? so then she loses all exactly, faith. exactly. And why wouldn't you? Why I I don't know why any of us wouldn't. You know, I I I know for me, being able to keep faith that there was you know decent people around me was one of the few things that got me through my time in the military. So, for a situation like that, you're, yeah, I, I can't even imagine, and and I can't imagine making the choice. I mean, not, not that it's an unconscionable choice, but I can't imagine having to being so pushed in that direction because you know about the camaraderie that's built on a deployment. You know about the, the, the nature of how soldiers' relationships change versus the garrison environment. Absolutely. Think about how deep the distrust would be even further because it did happen in such a vulnerable place. It happened in a place of death and destruction and combat. And I imagine there's also the feeling among some victims that it's not worth reporting what happened to me because there are so many more important things happening here and the mission is so important and how dare exactly. I, you know, cloud the mission with my own. Maybe I'm being dramatic. I mean, you could see all the different things that could potentially go through someone's brain, especially someone who's been damaged by the emotional trauma and the physical trauma of a sexual assault. It's, it's really disturbing. And I think that what me and you are doing is, is important in the sense that what we're trying to provide empathy and bring up these issues without necessarily taking a stand on exactly what the legal decision should be because neither of us are experts after just reading a few reports. But by bringing these points up and trying to speak from the position of a potential victim and maybe we should get someone on and, and interview them uh, to talk about this, even just a female soldier who has experienced it either herself or with soldiers in her unit. Because at least we're bringing attention to the two sides of this Senator Kirsten Gillibrand debate, you know? I mean, what's it, what is the problem with sexual assault in the military? What are its contours? And what is the right process for adjudicating? And, you know, again, I don't think we have the answers, but it's important that we're trying to uh, give the victim a voice and uh, at least a platform uh, to discuss the complexity of all this. Um, there is one, one change that I think would be really important to be made, and that is it on on somebody going through MEPS that you can't have anything in your history that shows evidence of either sexual harassment or of domestic violence because both those crimes speak to violence against women in one way or another and that can translate into sexual assault down the line there was a guy um, he actually um, uh, committed a murder at Fort Lewis and on his record, he had gotten out of the army for a short time and then re-enlisted. In that short time, he committed a sexual assault. That should have prevented him from coming back in. There should have been no way that he was able to go through his background check again and successfully do it, but he did. And it speaks to, um, trying to think of the recent incident with the, the records were, oh, the, um, uh, the guy at the Air Force Base shooting um, down in Texas that that needs to be seen as important 
And again, then we get back into the to the kind of we having a mostly male structure. If the guys doing these tasks don't understand the importance, they're not going to do them. They won't care. It's it, it paperwork in the military is a is a is a side job. It's a cush job. It's not what we actually do, but it is very very important. And so. I don't even know about how that could be always could be successfully done to ensure that everything makes it into the background check system that needs to be there, um, that uh, that guys are properly vetted for those lesser but still significant crimes against partners. And remember that any of these guys make it in, whether it's somebody that had never committed an offense before or somebody who was a serial offender, men can become victims too. It's not... We, we have to get out of this mindset that women are the only people that could be victimized sexually. And so, you know, looking at people coming in, well, yeah, he sexually assaulted this lady, but his recruiter told me he has a 300 plus PT score. The, at, at that moment, at that moment of entry, it can't be about the mission. It has to be about putting the right people in boots. If, if when the rules move away from that, then we start putting people in there who are going to hurt all kinds of people, and we're not going to know about it because of the nature of the crime. Totally agreed, 100%. As soon as the country gets tied into another Iraq or Afghanistan-level deployment, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the recruiting standards drop again like they did in 2006 and seven, at the height of the surge in Iraq. And when that happens, you know, I could see lax laws you know about whether people with histories of domestic abuse and or sexual assault are, are brought back into the military because of a you know a crisis in numbers a recruiting crisis we just can't allow that because we're going to mortgage our future in the interest of the here and now and we we've had a lot of problems with that um and a perfect example is the shooting down in texas where you know the military chain wasn't talking to the civilian legal justice criminal justice chain and, and therefore this individual is able to buy a gun. And it's, it's, it's highly disturbing and it does speak to the big issue today which is the overlap and sometimes um, you know inconvenience of the overlapping US military justice system and, and the civilian side. And it's, it's tough. It's a tough debate. And you know, something else I want to talk about really quickly with this is the whole sexual assault debate I think it does kind of relate to the whole women in combat arms debate which we're gonna have to do another episode on you know the, yes. allowing women into the combat arms debate we're, we can spend probably an hour on that but these issues are tied together because many people who are against women in combat arms including president trump in an infamous tweet have said that you can't put women in combat arms because when you put men and women in the same room of course there's gonna be sexual assaults and you know therefore you shouldn't let them in now I think that that's Bullshit. terrible, right? It's it's it's, it's shockingly uh, inappropriate logic. It's 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 shockingly illogical. But this is, I mean, he said that in a tweet, and he's the president and the commander in chief, and a lot of people make that argument, and so that's why I think it relates. Now, whenever I hear something like that, all I want to say is look at the Kurds, look at the YPG in Syria. Those badasses have like hundreds of yes, tough women absolutely. fighting and dying in combat. So you know that sort of gives away my view on the whole thing, but. Um, but it is a complicated issue, and I'm just saying it relates. All these things are intertwined. You can't disconnect sexual assault from women in combat arms, from women in the military, because they're all very, very related. And I think it also really relates to what's going on in America right now, in the culture, with the, the Me Too movement, 
political figures and celebrities being brought down because of sexual harassment or sexual assault charges. This is a big issue right now, and I don't think we've seen the last of it. I think this is the tip of the iceberg. The military is going to reflect what's going on in society like it always does. And if this is a big story on the outside, it's going to be an even bigger story in the military. I'll give you just one last point on that or one last example to show you how hot this is in the military right now. When I was teaching at West Point two years ago, the three-star general, the superintendent in charge of the academy, he said that his number one priority for the semester, he said this four semesters in a row, was lowering the incidence of sexual assault at the U.S. Military Academy. He didn't say training America's leaders. He didn't say preparing infantrymen for war. He said, my number one priority is sexual assault. And a lot of people said, wow, that's terrible. I mean, I was a little skeptical of like, how can that be your number one priority? You know, that's, that doesn't seem like it should be the number one priority of the military academy. All I will say is it reflects how big of a deal this is. And he told us the reason is his number one priority is because at the time, the chief of staff of the army, General Ray Odierno, said that it was his number one priority. So, of course, the commandant of West Point or the superintendent of West Point reports directly to the Department of the Army. So he wanted to link or nest his priority with his. But the only reason I bring that up is to show you I really do think this is the tip of the iceberg. Everything we're seeing on the outside is going to come right back and, and ricochet throughout the military like it always does. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www fortressonahill.com You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities and last but certainly not least analyze your news and its sources very closely verify everything you read And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.